0: This episode of My Financial Life is sponsored by Audlum Brown Limited. Audlum Brown Limited is an independent, full-service investment firm providing disciplined investment advice and objective value-based research with a singular focus on clients. From Alumni UBC, this is My Financial Life, a podcast mini-series about personal finance. On this episode of My Financial Life, host Kirk LaPointe, the Editor-in-Chief of Business in Vancouver, and adjunct professor at the UBC School of Journalism, speaks to UBC alumnus Ian Robertson, a Vice President, Director, and Portfolio Manager at Audlum Brown Limited.
1: Today on the program, we welcome Ian Robertson. He's a Vice President, Director, and Portfolio Manager at Audlem Brown. He's been a leader in what we know as responsible investment. He has vast experience in helping investors determine whether funds can be most ethically applied. We want to talk about the subject today. It's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a complex one, and, uh, but the idea is to help those just entering the field of investment. Thanks a lot for joining us, Ian.
2: It's my pleasure to be here. Let's, uh, let's
1: start by getting our definitions straight on this. How do you define ethical investing?
2: So ethical investing has a very long and strong history. It goes back more than 100 years. It started with largely religious organizations, and when they invested, chose uh, not to invest in certain companies or certain sectors that didn't resonate with their values. And that carried on um, sort of quietly as a part of the investment uh, industry for some time. And in the 70s, when the Vietnam War was on, a broader group of society came together and said, you know, we actually want to avoid stocks that are involved in the Vietnam War, companies that may manufacture arms or munitions. Um, and so it it broadened out a bit from its historic religious base, and then we can think back to the apartheid issue in South Africa, and largely led by campuses, including I remember when I was at UBC, uh, lots of uh, protests to divest from companies that were involved in South Africa. And so it, the uh, responsible or ethical investing broadened out even more. And then over the last 20 years or so, it's, it's become even more widespread where people invest in or screen out companies that are environmentally or socially and now uh, also including governance issues. So CEO pay would be an example. Um, uh, so companies that, that don't resonate with their values from an environmental or a social perspective might be screened out. Um, And others that that really do resonate with people's values might be screened in and emphasized a little more. So that's the history of the ethical and then socially responsible investment. And believe it or not, it's actually a little different than what we now call responsible investment, which has a slightly different investment industry background um, and... and, uh, I, I can talk about that. Uh, yeah, no, I'd like to know
1: what the difference is in there. I think a uh, you know a, a a layperson might just see them all as the same piece.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and that's generally they they're sort of used interchangeably, but they do have different backgrounds and they do mean slightly different things. So the first part, this ethical or socially responsible investing, is really a values based thing, right? It's 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 avo- it's avoiding companies that really don't resonate with you, or and emphasizing ones that you do think are good. Uh, making positive change. Responsible investment has its background in the, the coordinated part of it in a United Nations-backed um, organization called the PRI, Principles for Responsible Investment. I've been to their offices in uh, London, England. And they got a lot of the leading investment firms to sign a, a pledge, and they adhere to six principles. And the roots of it are, are actually an investment analysis. And so the, the core of what the PRI coordinates, leads, um, so so companies sign on to be members of the PRI and adhere to these principles. The core of it is integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into the analysis. So there's no moral judgment there. They're really just saying we're gonna take account of it. And the theory there is that just by taking account of it, by asking companies, it it helps with the transparency that companies are just if they pay attention to these things, they're naturally going to get a bit better of it. It's sort of shining that sunlight on these practices. And also, these same companies, when they own stocks, if they invest in these companies, then they also use their ownership stake, their voice, their proxy votes, uh, to engage with companies and tell them, we want you to do a little better on this, we want you to be a little more transparent, tell us how much water you use, tell us what your supply chain management policies are when you're sourcing t-shirts from uh, uh, another country. You know, how do you ensure that the factory conditions are good? Or what do you do with uh, toxic waste or how much water do you use? Those kinds of things. Um, and that leads straight to the, the other main part of the PRI's work, which is really to, to help the whole investment field become more transparent. So it's focusing on these issues and trying to bring sunlight to them and make them more transparent. And, and that helps everybody. The companies behave better. Governments have more information to work with as they set policies, to good policies, to nudge companies to do to have better uh, behavior. And uh, so, so that's the difference, the ethical roots versus the more investment analytical responsible investment field.
1: Okay, so as, as an advisor, as an investment advisor, uh, reassure me here that you're not paying a big premium in order to involve yourself in this responsible ethical field, that, that the returns are still there for you
2: the returns are absolutely there, 100%. Yeah. I, I will give one qualification. So the, f- the first thing I would say is if you have a stock portfolio, if you're working with an advisor and you're choosing stocks to put into your portfolio, you, you have every right to have stocks that you're comfortable with and, and not have stocks that you're not comfortable with. The thing you want to pay attention to, and this is where it comes back to the performance, is that you still generally want to adhere to good principles of diversification. You want companies in different sectors, maybe that work in different parts of the world that are diversified to to, to make sure that you get the best return with the lowest amount of risk. There have been a lot of studies, some showed, they used to show a little bit of underperformance, more recent ones have showed a little bit of outperformance. In my opinion, the the performance of ethically screened uh, funds, investments are going to be very similar to ones that are not. And in all likelihood, you as an investor will do better because you're more comfortable with what you have. You're more likely to have confidence in it, to hang on in tough times. And so uh, you should have exactly the same performance and your, your own sort of behavioral aspect will actually lead to a better outcome than if you have things that you're not comfortable with.
1: Yeah. You, you talked earlier about, uh, about some of the ways in which uh, these, um, these funds are, uh, are identified globally and, and uh, a little bit of a seal of approval that, that seems to exist on some of them. How difficult is it, though, to really align your value system with your investment?
2: Well, it's that's a very good question. So if you're working with an advisor and you're picking stocks directly, uh, actually having investments in your portfolio that, that resonate with you and, and avoiding ones that don't resonate with you is, is quite easy. But it does beg a second question, which is, how do you know exactly what companies' practices are behind yeah. the scenes? You know, Beyond that sort of brand name and uh, there are um, third-party information providers that that provide um, you know, even letter grades really on their on their behavior and uh, but but it costs money to get that kind of information so some advisors will pay for that some firms will pay for that some funds uh, will use that as an input um, to make sure first of all that they're analyzing companies well, they're getting all the information. This is information that's not necessarily in their financial statements. It's qualitative information. So they'll make sure that goes into the analysis. And and it can also be used as a kind of ethical stream. Are there controversial things in the background? Are there, Do their practices resonate with what their image is? And we have that kind of research uh, at my office. And uh, it's surprising sometimes what uh, the perception of some companies versus when you look under the hood, so to speak, and uh, yeah. you know, see some of the operations.
1: So you say, you know, it's a bit difficult to look under the hood. You've got to get some advice and all that at the risk of really giving you a commercial here. Is it necessary to have um, assistance in all of this? Can you really try to go it alone all that easily?
2: Uh, well, not easily, but you certainly can. Yeah, you know, if, if you think of the three b- broad channels through which investors access the markets, uh, they they can go to a discount broker, and they're going to get charged whenever they do a transaction, a very small commission, uh, and they're they're essentially doing all the work themselves. And that's great for those that want to do that and do the work. Um, they can do it, and, and with some digging, they can find out th- these types of qualitative uh, issues as well and make their own judgment, just like they're making a judgment on the valuation of a company, looking at its income statement and its balance sheet. So sure, absolutely. Many other people will go to... Uh, some kind of value-added advisor, if they're buying stocks directly, historically we would call them stock brokers, but probably financial advisor is a better term these days, a sort of more inclusive term, and and they're going to to get value-added advice on is this company worth investing, is is its valuation good, and they'll also be able to get more information about a lot of these qualitative aspects. Uh, not, Not all firms and not all advisors will have access to this, but more and more. Uh, this is also the type of information that uh, financial advisors are offering. And the third channel is that you can actually delegate the management of your investments to a portfolio manager. Um, and that portfolio manager is, is invariably going to ask you, do you have any ethical concerns? Are there things that we should avoid? Uh, that, um, Or is it just an open mandate We, we you want to get the best return? And, and different people will have different responses to that. So those are sort of the three channels. And it's different levels of work for the individual.
1: Yeah. Do, do you find that typically the, the the kind of investor that this attracts is somebody that actually does nurture the investment a little bit more, is a little bit more on top of it all the time, looking for the behavior of a company, whether it's running into any any issues, uh, on the lookout for other companies that might be like minded. Is, is this a more active investor in your view?
2: That's you know that's a very interesting question. Um, in my experience it's it's actually been slightly different it's been issues that bother people so for example, it is that supply chain management where people think of the labor practices that get highlighted from time to time in, in factories for all kinds of uh, companies that we buy products from um, often it has to do with CEO pay which makes the um, headlines uh, from time to time and people say you know I just these these companies I invest in I just get the sense that I, I don't have any input into the uh, you know the, the pay level of the CEO, but of course they do. They they get it's a small vote, but if they have 100 shares, they get 100 votes, or 1,000 shares, 1,000 votes. And uh, you know, for the size of some of these large companies, that's a small amount. But collectively, and this is this is the sort of ethos of responsible investment is that collectively it can make a difference. And so, having an advisor that will work with you to kind of nudge these companies in a better direction, whether it's through the analysis side when you're asking companies these questions or later on once you own it with that vote um, is, is a way to so uh, my experience has been that it's really different issues that bother uh, different people and that they want to screen out different uh, types of companies or engage the companies um, if they do own them to say hey I don't like that behavior and uh, let's see if we can use our little vote to uh, nudge it in a better direction.
1: So if you're going to employ an investor, uh, an advisor in this case you direct that advisor to always be on the lookout for wild CEO pay or a labor practice issue or, you know, keep keep your heads up for those kinds of things that, that are bothersome to you. What I wonder about too is, you know, it's not just an investment issue. Of course, it can be a divestment issue. How difficult is it to get out of certain funds or stocks uh, when you, you know when you you start to feel like they're not aligned.
2: Yeah, the, the actual. So if you have individual stocks in your account in your portfolio, very easy, very easy to do it. There there may or may not be a transaction cost to do it, but to actually sell those stocks, very easy. Um, if it's within an, another like a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund, you don't really have a mandate to get them to divest the it. But you could move to another. Version that, that didn't include those stocks.
1: Yeah, so you have to go to a whole other fund, right?
2: That's right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yep. Yep. And, and there, more and more, there are different options uh, geared to the, the different value sets, broadly speaking, that uh, people may have. So low carbon ones are, are popular these days for people that say, you know, I, I want to do my bit for climate change, uh, so I want to have a low carbon. Uh, fund or investment portfolio. But it does beg a second question, Kirk, which is does does it actually do anything? So again, the first point is you don't have to have anything in your account, in your portfolio that really bugs you. You, you really don't. As, as long as you still stay broadly diversified, you, you'll do just fine. Um, but the question about whether it does anything, when you divest from oil companies, for example, if you sell all of them, um, it in all likelihood, doesn't actually have any financial impact on that sector or on those companies. Because you're selling it, someone else is buying it. It's a bit like I, I use the analogy of, uh, you know, if you have a, a can of oil-based paint, which we don't really use anymore because it's the sol- solvent-based and it's not good for the environment. Um, but if you have a can of that in in your garage and you just move it to your neighbor's garage, the world is no better. You've just made yourself feel better. It's not in your garage anymore. Um, and that's, that's really the analogy of what happens when you sell. And so the the, the theory behind divestiture is, well, if we can get enough people to sell, then maybe it will make a difference. And and there are some studies that show that, including uh, one from uh, a professor named Rob Henkel, who uh, is at UBC in the Faculty of Commerce, or solder I should say, uh, showing my age there, um, it, that says, you know, in theory, you you can if you can get 20% or so of people to divest from this, it's going to have it's going to start to have an impact on the cost of capital. The problem with the world of finance is it's largely anonymous, and you know when you're selling, somebody else is is buying it, and it's just going somewhere else. And so, the the true value in a divestiture campaign is really the publicity. It's the yeah. signal to, to politicians and to others. We need business with this. Come on, let's let's get going. And, and is that
1: and is that better in your view than simply trying to wage a bit of a Public misery campaign for that company to as a shareholder to get them to get out of a particular activity
2: well I, I think it's a very effective uh, PR platform um, to get companies to move and to get governments to move um, so again I don't think it actually has an impact on their finances but it, it's certainly I mean all of us have read lots and lots and it happened at UBC as well campaigns to get endowments, university endowments, to divest from uh, oil. And I think the value in that is tremendous, to get people thinking. And really what we should be thinking is, okay, great, maybe I want to be part of this and tell people I've done it. Um, I still want to get the broad investment returns, but I'm happy to divest from this sector or another one that bothers you. But the key question we need to ask ourselves is, well, what are we going to do as individuals? Are we going to ride our bike to work? Are we going to you know, go go uh, largely a plant-based diet, Are we going to fly less often? Those kinds of things. I mean those those things really do move the needle as well.:
1: Yeah, I guess my last question to you would be, uh, it's one thing to be either investing or divesting in these funds, but if you if you don't lead a congruent life with that, are you really making much of a difference?
2: No, you're not. I mean, we shouldn't overstate how much difference. Uh, things like divestiture. I mean, really, what we're doing when we when we divest or screen ethically is we're 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 trying to nudge somebody else to do something. And, and companies are big. Uh, don't get me wrong; they have a tremendous impact on the environment. But we also need to look at our own actions and say, uh, "Yeah, I should I should take the bus to work."
1: Nudge yourself first. Yeah.
2: But yeah, and you can do both. We really should do both. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Ian, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thanks a lot for your help today on the podcast. It's been my pleasure, Kirk. Thanks.
0: My Financial Life is a production of Alumni UBC. Thank you to our host, Kirk LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief of Business in Vancouver, and adjunct professor at the UBC School of Journalism, and our guest, Ian Robertson of Audlum Brown Limited, for participating in this episode. We would also like to thank Audlin Brown Limited for sponsoring this week's episode. On the next episode of My Financial Life, Kirk will speak to Amanda Butler of Alumni UBC's travel partner, Worldwide Quest, about the topic of travel hacks and managing your travel finances. Episode 3 of My Financial Life drops next Tuesday.